Welcome. Hi, we are so glad that you are here. And if you are new with us, we have um, something special for you out on the patio. So there is some connection counters. There's two in the lobby and then one out on the patio. And we'll even be at the one out in the patio after the service. So we would love to meet you if you are new. So we are so glad that everybody is here today. And um, through church history, the people of God have recited prayers together to affirm their faith in God. As we prepare our hearts to worship the risen Christ, we're going to stand together and we're going to pray these words. So let's all stand. to celebrate the Creator's masterpiece, offering our voices in praise and awe. Through the waters and lands, creatures of all kinds were woven into existence, each a testament to God's creativity. As we join in worship, may our hearts resound with the harmonies of creation, reflecting the diversity of God's handiwork. From the dust of the earth, humanity was formed, bearing the divine image and entrusted with the stewardship of this sacred world. With humility, we embrace our role as caretakers, seeking wisdom and grace to fulfill our purpose. As we lift our voices and hearts, let us remember the rhythm of creation, rejoicing in the one who continues to make all things new. May our worship be a symphony of gratitude Echoing the melody of creation's praise. Triune God, unite us as one body as we worship you now. Amen.
right now and whatever we came in here with this whatever weight we came into this building with God we just lay it at your feet right now so that we can come to a worthy God without anything holding us back we want to offer you our everything God we want to see your face Lord we want to hear your voice we want to know you more thank you Jesus started this new Old Testament series, there's a song that came to mind that we, we led at a prayer and worship night a few months ago, and it's called Pull Me Through. It might be new to most of you, but I was thinking about how can we relate to these Old Testament characters that we're going to be talking about and learning about. This song actually kind of will prepare our hearts, I think, for where we're going in the message today and throughout the rest of these 11 weeks. The lyrics to this song say, when I can't see what's in front of me. You hold my hand, you guide my feet. Your word is a lamp that lights my way. You're the fire by night and the cloud by day. And there's so much other rich imagery of what's happening in the Old Testament. And so you might not really know what's going on in this song. Maybe you're, you're, you're new to the Old Testament. Maybe you haven't really looked at that yet, but we're gonna be going through that again, these 11 weeks. And so some of these things we're, we're singing about are about the stories of the people of God and his faithfulness. And I want us as a church, I just want you to learn the song at first. Once you get comfortable with it, though, we'll be singing it for, for a few weeks in the future. The bridge is saying, when I'm walking through the darkest valley, you pull me through. And I think that's how we can relate to these characters of the Old Testament. They are walking through the desert and the valley and the wilderness, and they feel so alone so often. And so many of us, that's our own story. But God's brought us through those moments. When I'm stranded by the lonely wayside, you pull me through. When my hope is faint and my heart's in pain, God, you pull me through. Whatever state that I am in, you pull me through. I've never known another like you. No other God can do the things you do through every single valley, mountain, drought, or fountain, you pull me through. And so God, as we sing this song to you now, Lord, we just wanna offer you our whole lives knowing, God, that you will pull us through you are faithful and true, God, and you will never abandon even one of your beloved. You're the one who never leaves the one behind. Father God, now as we sing this song to you, would you be honored and glorified with it? Teach it to us, help us to memorize it and to be able to sing it together so that you can receive the glory you're due, God. We wanna sing this song to you in exaltation with the spirit of thanksgiving because you are worthy of our praise. Amen. Amen. Let's sing it. my feet, 
Your word is a lamp that lights my way You're the fire by night and the cloud by day So I say, I've never known another like you No other God can do the things you do Through every single valley, mountain, drought or fountain You pull me through I've never known another like you no other God can do the things you do Through every single valley, mountain, drought or fountain You pull me through You sit me down and wash my feet You're the God who loves to comfort me The hands that hold the stars in place What do they do? They pull me into a warm embrace I've never known another like you No other God can do the things you do Through every single valley, mountain, drought or fountain You pull me through I've never known another like you No other God can do the things you do Through every single valley, mountain
you may be seated. So this morning we're going to continue in our time of worship, and I'm going to ask the ushers if they could come forward so we can receive the tithes and offerings. And as the baskets go around, I, I want to encourage each one of us. You had this moment this morning of worshiping. You have this moment to not only lift your voices, to put your eyes and your hearts on God, to focus on what he's doing in our lives. You have an opportunity to give back both financially, with your breath, with your energy, with your time. But it's also a time where we're here to also fill up, not just today, not just in this moment to hear God's word, but this, we're also here to find opportunities and ways that we can still spiritually grow and grow deeper and deeper in, the, in our roots and our foundation of God. And so this morning, I just want to remind you that there are opportunities beyond today for everyone to invest, for everyone to be discipled or to pour into someone else. And that is that you can join us tonight, <clears throat> sorry, tonight for the crew rally. If you're a volunteer, if you want to volunteer, come to the crew rally tonight. We are going to gather in the Life Center 6 p.m. And we are going to have a great time, but we're also going to continue to learn about where we're going as a church, what we're doing. We're going to hear from Pastor David and a few others, and we're going to pray. We have the opportunity to pray together. And then the other is Crash Course. Crash Course is coming up next week. And if you want to be a part of that, if you want to be a member here at New Life, if you want to know more about New Life Church and the heart behind it, come to Crash Course. You can sign up by going to Connection Central, which is out on the patio or the two counters in the back. And if you're new with us and you're like, what are you talking about? That's totally fine. Then go ahead and go to one of those connection counters. We want to meet you. We want you to be seen. We want to know each other's names because we're a family here at New Life. This isn't something that we want you to just come, check it out, and then never come back. We want you to know that you belong and that we want you here and we want to meet you and we want to connect you. So this morning, we have an opportunity to dive into God's word. And I challenge all of us, that spirit we had that we were worshiping, where we're raising hands and we're just putting ourselves in the center of that moment, that we also put ourselves right here. We focus in on his word and listen to what he has for us. So bless you. In the beginning, these words begin a grand narrative that spans creation, trials, and triumphs, revealing the intricate relationship between humanity and its creator. As Christians, we find our place within this narrative. In the rich tapestry of the Old Testament, we uncover the origins of our faith, the foundation on which Christianity stands. We're connected to the lineage of Abraham, guided by the wisdom of the prophets, and ultimately led to the fulfillment of God's promises in the New Testament. The Old Testament teaches us about obedience, faith, and redemption, inviting us to participate in a story that echoes through time, shaping our identity and purpose in the divine story of salvation. As we bear witness to what the Lord has done, may we remember that we've been adopted into this family. This is our story. Well, good morning, New Life. You know, that really is what we want you to anchor yourself in uh, this coming series, is that this isn't just a story that we read about other people, but it is our story. It's our family origin story. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have received his forgiveness, if you have grounded yourself in what scripture has revealed to you about who God is and who we are and how God is going about saving humanity and restoring all of creation, that this is our story. And so we want to, um, the challenge is that some of us 
are uh, vaguely familiar with the story, specifically the Old Testament. And so we want to make sure we anchor ourselves in the Old Testament over the next several weeks so that we can grow in our understanding of who God is and who we are and how God is going about saving us. So a couple things. First of all, that um, um, intro video, they, uh, that's, uh, those are clips from the Bible Project. If you're not familiar with the Bible Project, I just want to encourage you to become familiar with the Bible Project. It's a great resource. It makes reading uh, scripture and specifically understanding the literary genres that you're reading and what you're reading and how to read it um, really uh, helpful. And so we gave you uh, these uh, bookmarks last week, but if you didn't grab one, stop by one of the Connection uh, Centrals and pick up one today. It has the reading plan on there, the study guide plan, but also some uh, a, a QR code that brings you to our landing page where you can discover uh, specific Bible products project videos that will be assisting you throughout this series. The second thing is, um, in a really good way, we um, ran out of all of our invitation books last week. Um, That was awesome. A whole bunch of people decided to jump on and be a part of uh, reading through this devotional called The Invitation, which is going to take us through the story of God. And uh, we have ordered more. And so if you want to stop by one of the um, Connection Centrals, if you didn't get one last week, uh, you can stop by, uh, pre-order one of those. uh, Because we ran, I mean, we had a hundred of them. We ran out of all those, and so uh, we ordered a hundred more, and so if you want to pre-order those, and um, today you can stop by Connection Central and do that, and they will also, um, we've printed, I believe, the first several chapters, or the first two chapters, so that you can stay on track, and if you do get behind, we, you know, sometimes isn't it nice to have like a catch-up week? Um, so in a, in a couple of weeks, uh, Pastor Billy uh, Palouse is going to be here preaching, and we're excited to hear an update of just the mission um, that God is doing in India. And so during that week when he is here, uh, that's your catch-up week. So if you get behind, you have a catch-up week. Pretty awesome, right? So I'm gonna have you do something very um, odd and weird for an Old Testament series. I'm gonna have you turn to Matthew in the New Testament. Um, So grab your Bibles, open up to the book of Matthew. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter four, starting at verse one. Um, Matthew chapter four, starting at verse one. Um, If you want to, on your way to Matthew, go ahead and maybe uh, kind of put your finger in Deuteronomy because we're going to be flipping back and forth between Matthew and Deuteronomy. And one of the things I want to help us do, again, before we dive too deeply into the Old Testament is to give you some tools of how to read the Old Testament and uh, the lenses we sometimes need in order to understand the New Testament more fully. So that's kind of what today is going to be, giving you a, a couple of tools along the way using a New Testament passage that I think is going to help us do that. Now, uh, in 1999, there was a movie that, that came out um, called The Sixth Sense. And so if you weren't around in 1999, you, may, you have never uh, seen that movie. Um, I'm imagining that many people that are gathered here today have seen that movie. Uh, it came out in 1999, so spoiler alert, um, Bruce Willis is dead the entire time. So like, if you haven't seen the movie, um, maybe no reason to go watch it now, but again, it came out in 1999, so you kind of missed your opportunity for the last 20 plus years. So, uh, but here's one of the things, when you're first watching that movie, if you're not familiar with it, you're going through this movie and you're like, kind of like, uh, with the storyline, and when it finally happens that all of a sudden a light bulb comes on and you realize that Bruce Willis has been dead the entire movie, your brain just kind of goes, Right? And all of a sudden they do kind of this recap highlight reel of all the clues that were given along the way that you should have been picking up on. And if you go back and watch it a second time, you begin to see all those little clues a little bit more easily along the way. And you begin to, oh, how did I not pick up on that? How did I not realize he was wearing the same clothes the entire time? Like all these things that, that, that you were like, hey, you know, he never talked to his wife, you know, like, like, like specifically, like was she just mad at him the whole time or something? But like, you never like figured out why, why, like why was this happening? But when you go back and watch it, you see all the clues. And so one of the things that is important for us to recognize when it comes to the Old Testament is that throughout the Old Testament, as we said last week, that the Bible is a library of books that tells one unified story that leads to Jesus. 
So all along the way, we are picking up clues. Now, again, there is a very appropriate way to read scripture that recognizes that those who were, God was originally revealing his word to uh, had no understanding of who Jesus was and the Messiah and the fact that God was moving in this direction. So there's an appropriate way to understand scripture and, and realize that there are sometimes reasons why really awkward things happen because it wasn't like they had this expectation that eventually Jesus was gonna come yet. There's a growing in that along the way, but just like once you've seen the movie one time, once you know the rest of the story, there's a lens that we begin to read and understand the Old Testament with that we recognize that it's all pointing towards Jesus. And we begin to see the Messiah and the coming and the expectation of the coming Messiah woven through the entirety of the Old Testament. Furthermore, when it comes to the New Testament, all of a sudden you begin to pick up on the fact that uh, Jesus and, and Paul, specifically Paul, uh, one of the foremost writers of the New Testament, and Jesus throughout the Gospels, are constantly quoting the Old Testament. And so it's very important that you become familiar with the stories of the Old Testament because many times Jesus is giving reference to something that he wants you to pick up on. And if you're not familiar or if you don't go back and look up where that came from, then you won't understand why he, uh, it was so important that he was quoting that in the first place. So in the book of Matthew chapter uh, four, uh, verse one, we read these words. It's Jesus, he's being tempted in the wilderness. It says this, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now again, I want you to take out your notes and your, and your pencil today, uh, be ready to underline, and I want you to recognize a couple of things that are happening right away in this particular passage. First of all, you notice that the, there's some real key language. Jesus goes into uh, the, the desert for 40 days. Um, we know, or you may not know, that the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. Those are important comparisons for us to pick up on. We recognize that the wilderness and this idea of wilderness is important both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, wilderness in this particular portion of scripture uh, can be seen as wilderness, desert, a lonely place, or a quiet place. But it's where, it's where so often we discover both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that we encounter God and we encounter our own sinfulness. Have you ever noticed that it's in the wilderness, the desert seasons of life that maybe you can point to and say, that was a moment in the desert season, in the wilderness, where I encountered God in a powerful way. In fact, some people would say, I, there's no way that I would ever necessarily wanna go through that season again, and yet it was the closest I ever felt to the Lord. And so in this wilderness, in this desert season, we encounter God in significant ways. And yet in the wilderness, in these desert seasons, we also are confronted with the potential for our own sinfulness and our own brokenness and our own willingness at times to wander and do our very own thing. And so both in the desert, also sometimes this, this uh, Greek word is translated loneliness. And I would say the same thing. It is in the lonely times of life. It is in the quietness of our time with God that we discover sometimes the most about him and we also, spend, we, uh, we also begin to understand the most about our own sinfulness. And so when we are reading this scripture and we're reminded of those desert seasons, when we're reading about the, um, the Israelites wandering through the desert, we begin to lean in and say, what are they learning about God and what are they learning about their own sinfulness? What are they learning about their own brokenness? Another thing that happens really obviously right off the bat here in this particular text is that um, the devil is introduced. The tempter in some translations, the enemy. And one of the things that's really challenging for us both in the Old Testament and the New Testament when it comes to the devil, when it comes to this idea of the tempter, when it comes to the idea of the enemy, is that immediately our brain goes to this guy in a red suit with a pitchfork. 
And so what we do is we immediately discard anything that has to do with the spiritual realm that sounds like that. And the problem with that is, is that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you get a very regular understanding that the enemy is very real and that the enemy has come to um, steal, kill, and destroy your life. And so what we do is that when we hear this idea that the devil came and tempted Jesus, we immediately toss that out and be like, oh man, that, that's too weird. That, that, that goes against my scientific and um, kind of my, my modern mind. Like if, if people were more educated and evolved like we are, then all of a sudden they, they would understand that that's not, that's not appropriate or, or we don't have to think about that anymore. And yet the problem is, is that in Genesis chapter three, we become acutely aware that in our story of origin, the tempter comes along and the reason that God's good and beautiful and wonderful creation takes a detour into sin is because humanity, people just like you and just like me, listen to the tempter over and above the voice of God. And so when you read the Old Testament and you see the spiritual world kind of percolating to the top. You're like, oh, this is an ancient text. That's why that they talk about these types of things. That's why they have this type of spiritual language. I know we're, we're modern people. We can just explain away all of that type of temptation and all of what's happening on. I wanna caution us in doing that. Have you ever been tempted? Have you ever found yourself wrestling with the temptation of the enemy? When Jesus encounters the tempter in Matthew chapter four, one of the very first things that the tempter goes after is something that you should be, I don't know, I, I relate to and I, I believe that many of us can relate to as well, but he goes after his thoughts and his identity. He immediately goes after his thoughts and his identity because if you go back to chapter three, it is fascinating to me that one of the most beautiful scenes in the early part of the book of Matthew happens at the end of Matthew chapter three. Jesus is baptized and there's this incredible scene where the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove and it's an epic scene and you see this Trinitarian scene where you have Father speaking aloud, speaking in a voice, you have the Holy Spirit descending sending on Jesus like the dove and you have the son being baptized. And so you have this Trinitarian scene that is happening at the baptism. And when this is taking place, the voice of the father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Another way of understanding this translation is, this is my son who I affirm. He's the one that you wanna look at. He is the one that I am sending to you. He is the one that you want to embrace. He is the one that you want to follow. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He's just, God has just declared Jesus' identity at the end of chapter three. And immediately, in chapter four, the enemy comes along, the tempter comes along, the one who wants to steal, kill, and destroy our lives comes along and begins to challenge that identity. In the same way, we should hear echoes of the book of Genesis in, chapter, in Matthew chapter four as we begin to read and said, and basically the tempter is basically saying, did God really say that? Just like he did in Genesis. Did God really say that? And the question that we should be asking is, just like in the book of Genesis, is Jesus going to be willing to trust the will and the direction and the love and the wisdom of the Father? The devil comes along, the enemy comes along to assault Jesus' identity. And one of the very first things that the enemy is going to do in your life is he is going to assault your identity. He's going to begin to twist God's truth and God's movement in your life. And he's gonna say, did God really say that? Have you ever walked out of a service and you just felt, man, it was like, it was like a baptismal moment. 
You encountered the presence of the Lord. It was so good. And you walk out and the enemy begins to chirp. Did God really say that? Did he really reveal himself like that? He will attack your thoughts. And to somehow push aside and say, man, there is no such thing as a spiritual realm and there's no such thing as the enemy and there's no such thing. There's nobody that's trying to steal, kill, and destroy my life. When we have that mentality, then we don't press in and listen into the voice of the Father. We don't press into the presence of God because why? If there's, if there's, not, a, if there's not an enemy force, if there's not something that is trying to steal, kill, and destroy my life, then I'm good. I can kind of navigate this on my own. And quite honestly, there are many people gathered here today and watching us line and watching us on the patio that have kind of walked through life and you have this very small view of the fact that the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life. And yet when we read the Old Testament, we see the battle of the spiritual realm of those things that are unseen happening throughout the entirety of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And Jesus in this particular passage is retelling the story of Israel. This is so key. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And so he, he is articulating this story early on so that the people of that Jewish audience who are hearing this particular story would begin to go, hold on a second, this sounds very familiar. This sounds like the story that my great-great-grandfather told me, that my grandfather told me, that my father told me. This sounds like the story that, that we would tell around the dinner table. That this sounds like the story that we would tell during our festivals. And so Jesus quotes, again, the enemy comes along and says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answers, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So if you flip back, if you, if you, if you look at that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, if you flip back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter eight, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter eight, starting at verse three, we read these words. He humbled you, God's speaking to Israel. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you and feeding you manna and feeding you with manna, which neither you or your forefathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So a couple things are happening in the, uh, in the Old Testament story. You have this tension where the people of Israel were not honoring of God and they were not trusting in God and God had to uh, test them in such a way that to bring them back into relationship with him. But when you come to the New Testament, you have Jesus who is going to be considered the true Israelite, and instead of giving into the temptation to wander, instead of giving into the temptation of the enemy, he simply quotes the word of God to the enemy and says, I do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from my Father, out of the mouth of God. Verse 5. Then the devil took, took him to a holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Verse six, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now that end of that passage comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 91, that most of you would not have picked up on that particular Psalm. However, you might be familiar with the beginning part of Psalm 91, which says this, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. And so some of you have heard that kind of language, that God is our refuge and strength. And so here you have the enemy, again, the tempter, taking Jesus and standing him at the highest point of the temple and basically saying, throw yourself down and test God. And the question becomes, are you willing to trust God 
and his direction for your life, or are you going to trust what the enemy is calling you to do? And Jesus answers him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to a test. Again, if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 16. I know we're flipping around. Six, verse 16. It says, do not put the Lord your God, uh, do, do not test the Lord your God as you did at uh, Massah. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord um, your God gave you the stipulations and decrees that he has given you. When you go to that passage, you're like, hold on, Masah, what, what happened there? Well, if you go to Exodus chapter 17, 7, you realize that the Israelites um, grumbled and complained against God because he just wasn't providing enough. Have you ever found yourself grumbling and complaining against God because you are somewhere and he is, you're like, God, where are you in all this? What's happening? And so in this particular text, all of a sudden, you again, you see Jesus retelling the story of the Old Testament, but rather than grumbling against God, rather than saying, God, why'd you bring me out to this wilderness? God, why, are, why am I here? He is trusting in the Lord. Verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Verse nine, all this I, give you, I, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 13, you will be reminded that don't follow any other gods or any other nations. And so once again, Jesus is articulating that there is only one God, one worthy of our worship. Jesus is being tempted in this particular text to bring about the kingdom in his own way or in the ways of this world rather than in the ways of God in the ways of the kingdom we are tempted all the time to try to bring about our lives in the ways of this world rather than the ways of the kingdom verse 11 then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. And when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went to the, to, and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake and lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the, the, way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then verse 17 is what I wanna focus in on, which says this, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. So Jesus has, we've been, Jesus has been articulating or we've been reading the story where Jesus has been re-articulating the story of Israel. We're reading the story where Jesus is being tempted by the enemy. We're reading the story where Jesus has chosen to use the word of God in order to um, not give in to the temptation of the enemy uh, that was calling him to bring about the kingdom of God and, and the things of God by the ways of this world rather than the ways of God. And all of a sudden Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Couple of things. First of all, why does he say the kingdom of heaven and not the kingdom of God, which we read in other gospels? Well, Matthew, again, is writing to a Jewish audience and very common for, for um, writers who are writing to Jewish audiences to replace God with heaven because it was inappropriate to write the name of God and so they would replace that with the, with the word heaven. So it's the exact same thing that we see in the other gospels, this idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the calling once you know that the kingdom of heaven is at hand is to repent 
In the original Greek, this idea of repent, repent continuously. Ongoing repentance. That we're constantly looking at our lives and asking ourselves, do I need to turn and lean into my relationship with God? Do I need to turn from the things of this world and lean into what God, who God wants me to be and who he's calling me to be? Not This idea of repentance is not out of, sometimes we only think of repentance in this idea of obligation or shame or this weight that I need to repent. But that's not how repentance is looked at in, in this text, and it's actually not how we see repentance looked at throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. It's not about this obligation. It's not about this weight. It's about a deep desire to be the people of God. It's a deep desire to follow in the ways of Jesus. So what do we repent from? What are, what are you looking at when you're reading the Old Testament? What are you looking at that people are repenting, of, repenting from. The first thing that we see in the Old and the New Testament is the flesh, our desires, our worldly desires that kind of move us towards the things of this world over and above the things of God, a reordering of our desires. Let me frame it this way. In our culture, are you familiar with this phrase? Follow your heart, right? Follow your heart. Or this phrase, you do you. See, the problem with those phrases is that they're so ingrained into our lens that when we go and we read the Old Testament specifically, and even when we read the New Testament, when we have this lens that we go to Scripture, remember last week we talked about lenses we use when we come to Scripture, those that, are in, that we don't even realize sometimes that we have. When we go to the Scriptures and we begin to read it, and the lens that we have because it's been so ingrained in us is that we should be able to follow our heart or that we should be able to do me, I should be able to do me, and you should be able to do you, then when we come to to the scriptures, there will be no calling to repentance. We'll be like, well, I can just kind of push that aside because, you know, I'm gonna do me and you do you and we're just gonna get along. I'm gonna follow my heart. That's not what Jesus says at the end of re-articulating the story of Israel. He doesn't say, follow your heart for the kingdom of God has come. Follow your heart for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, repent. Meaning your fleshly desires are not going to lead you further into the kingdom of God. They're actually going to lead you further into the ways of the enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life. That's hard for us to hear sometimes. When we begin reading, we want to just simply say, ah, you know what, that just, yeah, you know, that's, they're, you know, ancient folks and they didn't really understand everything and I should just follow my heart. I should just do my own thing. Well, the Old Testament actually has a story to remind us how things go when everybody follows their heart. If you go to the book of Judges, it frames it this way. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Or let me give you a 2023 translation. Everybody followed their own heart. And life spiraled out of control. Because everybody simply did what their fleshly desires wanted. And nobody had concern for anybody else So Jesus comes along and he says, repent. Crucify those fleshly desires to the cross and come and follow me. And the people of the Old Testament that God calls out from the other nations, he says, come and be my holy people. Come and be my holy people. Which is the second thing that we, that 
we um, begin to see happening both in the Old Testament and within this passage or this calling of repenting is that we see this crucifixion of the, uh, of the flesh in the beginning to walk in the spirit, but we also recognize that there is a whole world who is not walking in the spirit and who is not walking in God's ways. And so one of the things we have to recognize uh, both in the Old Testament as we read about Israel is that there's other nations who have other ideas, other values, other practices that lead away from God. Guess what? In our current culture, there are plenty of different um, um, ideas and values and practices that will lead people away from God. And God comes along and says, I want to set you apart to be a holy people. You're going to look distinctly different. Notice it says a holy people, not just a holy person. One of the challenges that can happen when we don't read the Old Testament is that we forget that the scripture is a communal book. And because it's a communal communal book, God is creating a community of his people. And so what happens is when we just read the, the gospels uh, and the gospels and specifically the gospel of salvation where we receive Christ's forgiveness for our sins and we just kind of focus in on that, then it comes, becomes very individualized and it becomes about me getting saved and me getting to heaven. And for many of us, we grew up in a particular Christian culture that that was the entirety of the focus. But the reality is from Genesis to Revelation, God is always about building a community. In the book of, in the the, uh, early parts of the Old Testament, God establishes a family and that family becomes a nation and that nation is named Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ establishes the church through the power of the Holy Spirit, a community. And when you go to the book of Revelation, God doesn't come in the end simply to establish a, uh, a bunch of individualistic people. He is building a city where things are done by his standards and in his ways. And so one of the things we have to ask ourselves, church, as we're reading from Genesis to Revelation, when we're reading the Old Testament and understanding how Jesus, how we see Jesus, or how we see the Old Testament pointing us towards Jesus is, what does it look like for us to be a community of holy people? Not just individuals like, oh, aren't you so glad that I'm, oh, I'm so much holier than that person. I mean, that's how we tend to think about it, right? Like, like, hey, as long as I'm a little bit better than the person sitting down the aisle for me, I'm all right. That was never God's intent. His intent was to establish a community of people, to set apart a holy people. Think of it this way. God is calling us to be a holy people over and over a people who does whatever feels good. Let me say that again. God is establishing us to be a holy people, set apart, where he is our God and we are his people, rather than being a people who simply does whatever feels good in the moment. And so when you begin reading the Old Testament, you think, well, Leviticus, I mean, that's a page turner. (laughs) But Leviticus, you're going, hold on. God cared about what happened with this holy people and how they did things in the marketplace, how they ran their businesses. God cared about how they treated each other. God cared about the foods that they ate and the clothes that they wore. See, some of you grew up in legalistic systems and you're like, oh no, is that where we're headed? No, no, no. What we need to understand is that as God's holy people, we're constantly asking ourselves and evaluating what does it look like to be a faithful witness of Jesus in this day? And what happens is we read something like the book of Leviticus, we're like, oh, that doesn't apply to me, that doesn't apply to me, this doesn't apply to me, and we simply just blow it off and like, hey, let's just jump to the Gospels. And we miss 
the calling to be God's holy people. And we miss the wrestling with asking ourselves, what does it look like to be God's holy people in 2023? What does it look like to be, see, the people of the Old Testament, they weren't worried about doing whatever feels good necessarily all the time. They were worried sometimes just about what the other gods and how to kind of harness the power of the other gods that other nations were believing in. Like, oh, well, you know, people in our society, they're not believing in other gods. You sure about that? The God of wealth, the God of success, So God has called us to be his holy people set apart. And when we read in these coming weeks this text, and we read about Israel, can I challenge us to not, let me ask it this way. When you have been preached or heard sermons about David, King David, when you've heard sermons about David and Goliath, when you've heard sermons about Gideon, when you've heard ser- sermons about Ruth, when you've heard sermons about Abraham, our tendency is to gravitate towards their characteristics that were godly and ask ourselves, how do I be like them? But can I suggest to you that there is plenty, plenty of evidence that we should actually be taking a look at their sinfulness and brokenness and asking ourselves, how am I like him or her? How how is it that I, just like Israel, sometimes go and right after God has given me his commands, I go and I build a sacred cow and I worship it? How do I do that? How, do, how often am I the one that God has revealed his plans and purposes and I laugh at him? I'm the one laughing. How often do I not trust in him? Because when we read the scriptures and we think, oh, well, I'm kind of like King David. I'm gonna go slay Goliath. Guess what we don't need then? Savior. Because I'm just like King David. I can can go slay Goliath by myself. Give me some stones. Slaying, I'm good. But when we read the entirety of the Old Testament and we lean into the fact that we are a lot more like wandering Israel, mistrusting Israel, Broken and sinful Israel. Get it wrong often Israel. Then we begin to long for the true Israelite. Who will live in faithfulness like we cannot live. And who will trust in God in ways that we fall short of trusting in God. Who reminds us how to walk in God's ways and in the ways of the kingdom. And when we long for that true Israelite, we long for the Messiah to come into our lives and that by faith in him, we would enter the kingdom of God. And so as we read as we read the Old Testament in these coming weeks and as we go through this story, my prayer is that it would constantly point us towards our need for Jesus over and over and over again and not in a way that shames us and not out of obligation, but in a way that says there is a holy God who created me and desires relationship with me and that relationship comes through Christ and Christ alone and there is an enemy that is trying to pull me in another direction that I better recognize wants to steal, kill, and destroy my life. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father,
I pray that we would long, not for the promised land, but for the, but for the kingdom of God to be alive and at hand among us. I pray that we would long for a deeper, richer, more intimate relationship with Jesus. I pray as we read throughout the entirety of the Old Testament and as we go through the major themes of the Old Testament and stories of the Old Testament and different people in the Old Testament, God, I pray that our antenna would be up and it would cause us to um, not just identify with their godly characteristics, but we would also identify, God, with the sinfulness that we see in them and our same tendency to walk in those sinful ways so that we would long for a savior, a Messiah. I pray that we would see, God, that you did not give up on us. You did not push us aside, but you did the hard roll up your sleeve work of redemption and salvation. And it's messy and it's difficult and it looks a lot more like our lives than at first glance. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Next week, um, again, we will begin with creation. I'm excited to be able to walk through these next several weeks studying God's word specifically in the Old Testament. As you go today, may you go as the people of God, as a community of people, as a holy people set apart as a people who are walking in the ways of Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen and amen. Grace and peace to you. We'll see you next week.